Welcome to A Brief History of Power. We're going to take some listener questions this week, and it'll just be me. So we'll take them at whatever length I feel like answering them, and we'll see how many we get through, because we have quite a backlog. You guys always send in great questions. Keep sending them in. They're fun. Uh, This one, you can consider a kind of addendum to the series on cities, because the first listener question, which might take the whole time, but might not, is about another city that I didn't cover in the only time zone I didn't cover, which is both uh, the city I live near and the time zone I live in. So we'll take this first question from Jace and then go from there. Longtime listener, first time caller, I'd like to start by thanking you both for the work you do with this show and elsewhere. Well, thank you, sir. Onto this, onto the point, I don't have much to add or any insightful comments for the show, but I'd like to make a request. I've lived in southern Wyoming for most of a decade at this point, and there is a looming monstrosity to my south known as the Front Range. If you keep going south on I-25, you will arrive in Pastor Kuntz's current home of Denver. Despite being the only city of fame in my neck of the woods, my knowledge of what makes Denver tick is just about non-existent. I predicted that BHOP would certainly cover it in their cities, series, but thus far I have been proven wrong. No fear, you're now proven right. My household would greatly appreciate a brief history of Denver and a general overview of what makes it tick, especially given its landlocked location just about in the middle of nowhere. So to start this out is to say that when we talked about New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, we were talking about places that were much higher up in the rankings of U.S. cities as far as size in and of themselves, but also in terms of metro area, as well as historical impact. In the whole scheme of things, one reason, I didn't talk about Denver to begin with, but something that does make it tick, is that it is only the only significant city that probably people from outside the mountain time zone know of that's in the mountain time zone. In fact, it defines what mountain time is by its location. And the reason that matters is that in Denver, you behold a a specimen of what American Western settlement has been that's very different from San Francisco because it does not have the same natural advantages as much of this beautiful, but in the whole scheme of things, barren time zone does. So let's start from the beginning. And then the answer, not just to a brief history of Denver, but of what makes it tick is going to come much closer to the present because until roughly the 1960s and certainly before the Second World War, Denver was a place that was very isolated. So that meant that not only was it small, but it was also of relatively small impact. And the reasons for that will become clear as we go through the history, but the what makes it tick is going to be in a way far beyond New York, Chicago, or San Francisco is going to be connected to the federal government, as is so much in and after the Second World War. So without the existence of the federal government and without its investment priorities and without the kinds of people that it attracts, Denver is not what it is today. Denver is a product like a lot of other towns in Colorado, from Breckenridge to other obscure mining towns you probably haven't heard of, is a product of what's called the Pikes Peak Gold Rush. Now, Pikes Peak is near Colorado Springs. That's south of us, about an hour on I-25. And the front range that Jace referenced is really the, the range of 
foothills and early, you know, early mountains. If you're thinking early, like I'm moving westward, what do I first encounter? That's the, that's the first range of mountains in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and the whole area between, depending on how you count, if, if you want to southern Wyoming, you count from Cheyenne, Wyoming down to about Colorado Springs, Colorado, maybe all the way down to Pueblo. Probably not. Nobody likes Pueblo. That's the front range. So what it really refers to is the human conglomeration there along Interstate 25, not the mountains. That's significant because the whole region has always been interconnected. And in the Pikes Peak Gold Rush in 1858 and 1859, some of the gold discovered in what is now Denver, Colorado, by prospectors originally from Georgia, some of it discovered, and much more plentifully, in the mountains, so in that front range in, let's say, roughly the 10 to 12 months after that, that first discovery. Other Americans really only know the term Pike's Peak from the expeditions of discovery that the army launched earlier in the 19th century, whence we get Pike's Peak near Colorado Springs and Long's Peak in what's now Rocky Mountain National Park, both named after army officers. They call it the Pike's Peak Gold Rush, even though Pike's Peak is kind of far away from where the gold Almost all of it is, but nonetheless, that's going to get people out here. They're going to come not largely via rivers. They're going to have to walk overland, which is going to, again, deplete the number of people who do come. Some are going to come through the Arkansas River Valley, coming through Arkansas and Kansas, and then from the south upwards into, into what's now the Denver area. Denver is one of a couple of competing communities in its area where Cherry Creek and the South Platte River come together because you get different mining settlements. Denver is the settlement named after the governor of the Kansas Territory, who was the patron, in that way, James W. Denver, of northern settlers. Araria, which is settled by the, and named for gold, settled by the Georgians who first discovered gold in this area is going to be subsumed into Denver and is now a neighborhood of the city of Denver, city and county of Denver. So all of that is going to happen in the way that gold rushes happen. Tons of people are going to flood in. Those people are almost exclusively young men, and most of them are going to be disappointed. To that degree, Denver starts out no different than San Francisco, including as a supply point for everything else. What's really different about Denver are a couple of things that are going to make it very different from San Francisco, and still do, to be honest with you. Number one is it's west of the Midwest. It's not west of everything else. It's west of the Midwest. So Denver is going to be settled predominantly by people coming. They might have, and they probably did, originally come from somewhere in the Northeast. Maybe that's where their grandparents were born. But they themselves were probably born in Ohio and Illinois and Missouri, and then they come here to Colorado because the vast majority of those guys are young men and because mineral rushes always disappoint, a huge number of those people are gone by the 1870 census. So between 1860, when the census is taken, probably the census taker visits you in the summer. So this is even before President Lincoln is elected. Colorado has way more people than it's going to by the 1870 census because a combination of disappointment and civil war is going to cause a relatively sparsely populated 
rel- very difficult place to live, like Colorado, to empty out. And there's so many of them, they have their own names. They're called the go-backers, where they go to Colorado, things don't work out, and then they go back to where they came from. Colorado is going to remain, therefore, pretty isolated. Denver will change and begin to grow and turn into really the only city of note on the Front Range because eventually they win out over certain other original gold camps like Georgetown and Golden, and they secure railroads coming to them as spurs from Cheyenne or eventually Dewood coming from the east directly. That's going to enable people to come here and after the Civil War to begin to settle in Colorado. When they begin to learn that irrigation is going to be key to agriculture here, later on in the 20th century, this will be the place where pivots are invented that make irrigated agriculture possible across a lot of the American West. Once they figure that out, Colorado will begin to fill up to a certain degree. It's a more pleasant place to live simply on a climatic level, and it's easier to grow things here than either Wyoming to the north or New Mexico to the south. So relative to the west, to the rest of the west, Colorado is always going to have more people because not only is it relatively easy to reach, but it has a certain climatic, especially east of the Rocky Mountains, whether you're right on the front range where I am or east of me. It has a certain climatic sweet spot where it's neither terribly hot nor is it terribly cold or terribly windy or other things that make agriculture a lot harder to do. So Colorado is going to fill up in that way, but it's only filling up relative to Montana being sparsely populated or South Dakota or in the whole scheme of things, New Mexico being sparsely populated. Denver is going to prosper basically because of resources. So if you think about Denver, Colorado, you might think of it more like somewhere in Texas or perhaps Arizona than you would like a lot of other American cities. Uh, and that the resource that's really going to cause it to prosper and the source, particularly after the end of the Wild West, such as it ever existed when Colorado is wide open and you can kind of do anything you want for better or worse. The thing that's really going to make Denver prosper is going to be a combination of oil and agriculture. And that's pretty much forgotten, although it's it's visible in the fact that before Californians were probably our most our biggest import of other Americans to Colorado. Far and away, the biggest import to Colorado from another state were Texans, and that's because of the connections with the oil industry. So once petroleum becomes a big part of the American and the global economy, Denver is going to get bigger and bigger because of that. That obviously has a limit. So if you visited Denver in 1930, it's going to seem really big compared to Wyoming or South Dakota or New Mexico, which is much, much, much older. But it's not going to be, in the whole scheme of things, terribly big. And politically, as well as in their dress, Denver is going to remain pretty conservative and decidedly Western. That is, people are going to wear boots and hats and stuff like that in public, maybe on a daily basis, uh, for a long time after 1930. And some of that gets remembered in the names of our sports teams or in the importance of the stock show at the beginning of the year every year here in Denver. But a lot of that is kind of a gesture towards something that's quickly slipping away, somewhat like ranch culture used to be really big in large parts of California. 
what's going to change that and so this is this is more a history of you know what makes it tick than uh, you know year by year how many gambling saloons did we have and when did those close down and stuff like that which is interesting but really only of local interest what makes it tick is that Denver becomes first of all a place of significant federal investment and that's a result of the second world war in the first world war Denver doesn't matter that much and it's really kind of hard to reach in fact there are wars in which Colorado will raise troops like in the civil war or the Spanish-American War is a particularly good instance of this. They raise troops, but it's just so far. The troops <laughs> can't, can't get anywhere in time to get into combat. That happens in both wars, but in the Spanish-American War, we raise a whole unit. They begin to drill at Fort Logan, which is now a national cemetery here. And the war's over before they can even get anywhere. <laughs> so by the Second World War, the, the, the distance that Denver is from pretty much everywhere else, except maybe Cheyenne, Wyoming, is actually a good thing. And that's because of air power. So if not for fear of Japanese air power, particularly, Denver wouldn't be a terribly big place. The federal government locates during the Second World War both a giant ordnance plant, now known as the Denver Federal Center, and also a manufacturing plant for a variety of other weapons, northeast of the city, now uh, Rocky Mountain Arsenal, National Wildlife Reserve. Those, those both get put here. And they get put here because we're far away. So it's hard to get here. It's hard to fly a Japanese bomber here, even from the Aleutian Islands, which they did conquer at one point during the Second World War in Alaska. So because of our distance, that's, that's why they put stuff here. It's also why the various bases fields and forts that exist both in Denver and in Colorado Springs are going to become as large as they do. And it was part of the selling point after the Second World War for why the Air Force Academy, rather than being in the variety of other prospective spots, should be in Colorado. And it was started in Denver, and then once they had the permanent campus built, moved down to the Springs. All of that is because of physical security. So the NORAD that defends North America from Soviet nuclear attacks, both in Canada and the United States. That's in the Cheyenne Mountain Complex down in Colorado Springs. And Denver is going to have its own bases and its own everything. Also because the federal government owns such a significant amount of land in the West, what you might think of as purely civilian things like the U.S. Geological Survey and the Bureau of Land Management have giant footprints in the Denver area proper, specifically in Lakewood. All of that means that Denver becomes a place that instead of being decidedly Western, is going to become a place that potentially anybody could go. So you might want to hold Denver parallel to Miami or Phoenix or somewhere like that, parallel in this way too to Southern California particularly. Because Denver is going to be a place where no matter where you're from, you can come here. And no matter where you're from, the federal government has something for you to do here. And that's going to cause enormous growth after the Second World War. It's also going to disturb what was really its own political culture. So in, any, in the history of basically anywhere in the world, but particularly anywhere in the United States, there's a, there's a frontier time when there's tons of mixing. 
okay, of peoples. I mean, mixing is always a relative thing, but just to give you a point of comparison, there's a time in which the people of Virginia are from a lot of different parts of the British Isles in different proportions. And the same is true for the people of Massachusetts. So some of the oldest places in America that you can imagine are places of mixed, you know, transient peoples. One guy is from this part of England and another guy is from this part of England or whatever, right? After a while, especially under pre-modern technological situations, that calms down and people then begin to develop settled societies and they develop habits and customs and traditions such that if you know enough about any given place's history, you can kind of spot, especially in, a, in an American context, you can spot by last name where somebody's ancestors came from down to the level of different parts of England because like David Hackett Fisher has made popular in Albion Seed, the different regions of colonial America are largely settled from different parts of England. So this is sometimes possible to spot even on the basis of the last name. Okay, this guy was born in Illinois, but I can tell from his last name that his grandfather was born in Virginia because of the time when he was born. And you're going to be right like 90% of the time. That's because societies generally calm down and they get rid of a high degree of transience. Modern industrial transportation makes transience potentially always possible. So obviously in 1859, Denver or its environs or the mining camps in the mountains or whatever you might want to think of later on, Colorado Springs founded as a resort town. All those places are going to be in their beginnings, as any place is, very transient. But transience is not supposed to be, if you just look at history, a normal state of human affairs where anybody you meet could be from anywhere else. Places like Colorado or Florida or Arizona, even today in the United States, Austin, Texas, you can think of this on a more localized level in a lot of places. Even if you live in a very settled state like Alabama, probably your university town is like this that ongoing state of transience is going to create a completely different kind of society. And part of the myth, as Pastor Grills and I talked about, the myth of the Wild West is built off of this sense of transience. Like anybody you meet could be from anywhere and do anything and think anything. And it's kind of hard to know how to deal with other people. And there's lots of misunderstanding. This is going to get picked up, particularly in the misunderstandings between Volga Germans and generally Amer native-born American ranchers in the Johnson County War up in Wyoming, right? So Wyoming has the same issue that Colorado does in this regard. What's going to happen after the Second World War is that modern transportation conditions and the economic opportunity created by a federal government that is never supposed to get small ever again, along with all attendant contractors. And in Colorado, those contractors are and remain particularly heavily focused on aerospace, very similar to Southern California in that way. That's going to create an infinite need for new people to come here. Okay, so that's, that's one thread, is that infinite expansion of things that at least in their, in their embryonic form were related to the federal government, if not are the federal government actually hiring and moving people here, are a huge part of what makes Denver tick. That's also why our industrial sectors that are still growing are not going to be things like oil or agricultural trading, right? 
Denver in this way being a little bit like the mountain version of Chicago, right? So if you have grains or sugar beets or something, they can be traded originally on an exchange or shipped to and then shipped out from or processed in Denver. Instead, we're going to develop sectors that are incentivized by, funded by, grow through the beneficence of the federal government. So things like healthcare and aerospace and uh, technological research as we become sort of a surrogate or a secondary or a support for California as a state or as a region in the same way that as a city, Austin, Texas has done the same. Okay. So that's one, that's one part of what makes Denver Tech is that it is a creation, as is the entire front range of the beneficence and the economic opportunities offered through and by the United States government. If that had gone back to its pre-World War II size, of course, Denver would never have become anything like the size that it has. The other stream going on there is that Colorado has always been and has particularly since the 1920s marketed itself generally as a state, not to speak of previous marketing efforts before that time, but generally for about the last hundred years has marketed itself as an ideal place to live. So people move here for a combination of economic opportunity, but also, and, and, and have always moved here for a certain kind of a lifestyle. Now that starts out as originally a very specific medical need. The number of people who moved to Colorado between about 1870 and 1930 before the development of drugs and injections to handle tuberculosis, the number of people who moved here to escape the effects of tuberculosis, to use the dry air, the clean mountain air, the demands that the relative lack of oxygen makes on your body that actually makes you healthier, living at altitude is is can be difficult for a lot of people, but in this way can actually produce ultimately a healthier person. All of that always drew people to Colorado. That's why Colorado Springs grew originally. It wasn't just a resort town. It was a resort town for people who were sick in the more humid, let's say, eastern third. It's not really a half if you look at the map. Maybe the eastern third of the country, everything east of the Mississippi River. And they would come here to recover. So one of Denver's most influential mayors, Robert Speer, came from western Pennsylvania to Colorado to recover, became a cowboy. This is a different Colorado, obviously. Becomes a cowboy and eventually becomes mayor of Denver and is very influential in the way that especially downtown Denver looks today and the monumental parks and boulevards that we have. So that's, that's one lifestyle thing. Eventually, after the 1920s and especially after the Second World War, that expands massively. So people with cars can now drive here often from the Midwest and they'll vacation here for 10 years and then want to move here. I get it. I mean, it is, it is more scenic, you know, with apologies to our listeners across the Great Plains. Colorado is definitely a lot more beautiful than a lot of other places. So they're going to come here for lifestyle reasons and there are economic opportunities here, probably more than where they came from. And if there aren't People do and do still move here basically for the scenery. Okay, so that's one thing. But the lifestyle thing is also connected to something else connected to the federal government. So this is where one stream connects with the other. In the Second World War, a unit was formed called the 10th Mountain Division to engage in mountain warfare, in ski warfare, 
different kinds of high altitude or winter or mountainous conditions. And it was formed largely out of the embryonic version of the American ski industry, which was headquartered in the Northeast. It wasn't headquartered here in Colorado. All the towns that I'll mention in a second at that time in the mountains of Colorado were failing, so that Colorado was was basically, especially after the rush, the mineral rush had played out a lot of gold mining and silver mining, or certainly extensive excitement about them, Colorado would have become, at least in the mountain communities, more like West Virginia than like California in that way. Impoverished, not a lot of opportunity, probably quite conservative because you have populations settled there who are almost permanently economically depressed. Sort of a, a Western version of Appalachia, which you do get a lot of the same characters if you have been in small towns in the Mountain West that you would get in Appalachia in that way. But that relies on people staying in one place. What's going to change is that the 10th Mountain Division is eventually going to draw soldiers, tens of thousands of guys eventually, either to train or to be part of these troops, especially the 10th Mountain Division, which will train at Camp Hale, Colorado, which is up in the mountains near a ski resort, what's now a ski resort. That's going to entice a lot of those veterans to come back to Colorado after the war and to begin to do something, some of them being foreign-born, some of them being native-born, that previously nobody had really quite thought of, which would be to turn Colorado into a winter tourism destination. Now, Colorado had been sold, even in the 19th century, as America's Switzerland, but that really, really picked up after the Second World War when particularly air travel made it possible for you to fly here from South Carolina and go skiing or wherever it is that you're coming from. So you're going to fly in here, you're going to get on a really nice train into the mountains originally, you're going to get off and there will be a resort similar to what you might find in Switzerland or Austria and you can enjoy yourself in a place like Vail or Aspen or Breckenridge or lots of other places like that. When you come here, you will then also have available to you all the amenities that you are used to elsewhere. This is going to begin to make Colorado different from the rest of the Mountain West in its degree of development, and you might even say interconnection with other bigger places like New York and San Francisco. So people will begin to expect amenities and ways of living that you're not going to get in Buena Vista, Colorado. You can go look that up. It looks like Buena Vista. The Colorado pronunciation is Buena. So that tells you who's living in Buena Vista, and it also tells you how different things are if you live in a mountain town devoted to mining rather than one devoted to tourism and being a resort. That's not only going to change those towns, which are now going to become called ski towns. It's also going to change everything else because it means that we are a lifestyle destination for potentially anyone from potentially anywhere. As long as that economic engine that's primarily fueled, at least originally, by the government keeps up, then people will continue to come here also for lifestyle reasons that are very naturally understandable if you've ever been here, right? Those together are the two things that are going to make Colorado tick. What that means in modern America is that eventually it will turn a state that is 
kind of a kind of a, a normal northern state in the sense of like an Ohio or a New York or a Wisconsin is going to have a fairly even divide between people who disagree about things like tax rates. And control will go back and forth, although Colorado's generally pretty Republican down to about 20 years ago in things like national elections. It's going to go back and forth. It's not going to matter very much. The population will be still, in the whole scheme of things, very sparse. And that is going to be that, right? So Colorado, in that way, especially politically and ideologically, resembled other Western states to a very high degree until very recently. Its Republicans were not terribly conservative or terribly uh, deeply connected to religious motivations or religious groups. They have relatively little sway in the West, as they do throughout the West, also on the West Coast, historically. But in addition to that, it's also not a terribly ideologically motivated place. And this is sometimes described as Colorado being libertarian, or the West being described as libertarian conservatives. I tend to think that that matters a little bit less than the people that you know. Something you'll notice is that long-settled places in the United States are going to be relatively more ideologically motivated than places of great transience, and that in places of great transience, what really matters is population flows. If Colorado for a long time is a place, originally transient, as we're saying lots of places are, but then has massive population inflow from relatively conservative places like Iowa, then what is going to happen is that, like California throughout most of the 20th century, Colorado is going to be a place that is fairly conservative, not desperately so, not intensely so. It's quite racially homogenous, with the exception of the San Luis Valley and the South, which is the earliest place in Colorado to be settled by Europeans, but is in and of itself and down to today, in the whole scheme of things, very sparsely populated. Those, those guys are going to come up from New Mexico. But it's, it's overwhelmingly white. Its political divisions are, relative to today, very small. And it has relatively weak religious affiliation. That's not going to produce a highly ideological form of politics. It doesn't have anything like a legacy state church. It doesn't have a religiously tinged or funded or founded university. None of those things are true. It has functioning public institutions, great access to nature, and a relatively small population. What's going to change that is the reintroduction of transients. And this is where I think one, one way to think about the history of any country, but particularly of the United States in the last hundred years, is that if in early American history, you really need to think about rivers and how they flow and where they flow and how well they flow, to explain where cities were founded and where people went and how they got there and how fast they got there. In the 20th century, once you have industrial ways of moving large populations, whether it's railroads or highways or airlines, you need to think about where those people flows are. And in Colorado, especially after 1941 and picking up with greater and greater and greater pace down to about 2010 or 2020. Now that, and now we have some outflow that I'll explain. 
those flows are so huge that eventually Colorado will become unrecognizable to itself, which is where it's getting to. But the idea that people are just naturally libertarian or something doesn't really hold if you think about it on any kind of small scale. People are generally not libertarian about their spouses or their children's behavior. (laughs) Just so, when you live in small, subtle communities, whether you're in Colorado or anywhere else, you're not very libertarian about the way that your neighbor behaves. You need him to behave in a socially normal and respectable way. What we would call libertarianism, when it's not some sort of really deep ideological conviction, which is really kind of hard to maintain for any large population of people, right? We're not talking about people that believe in Ayn Rand. We're talking about normal human beings, right? When you say that, what what you really mean is that particularly throughout the West, because of not only relatively recent, but very definite sparseness. It's hard for anyone to be extremely worked up about what other people are doing. If that is mapped in electoral politics onto approving of legalized drugs or not worrying about the fact that a certain percentage of Denver's economy in 1900 is supported by illegal gambling or something... You know, maybe that's true, but I think on a, just, a, just a purely human level, it's much easier to maintain that human beings, when they don't have to be in contact with each other, end up not worrying very much about what each other is doing. And this is hard for people from more densely populated areas to understand, but it is the case that people do tend to leave each other alone because of the vast amount of open land and space that traditionally in Colorado, as throughout the rest of the West, you have. So what's going to change is those population flows change, and maybe Texans in 1970 are voting more conservative than Californians who move here in 2000 are voting, but in other cases that's just not true. So something that is under continual assault by our state government at this point is called the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, which takes excess revenue received by the state government and turns it back over to taxpayers by statute. That was brought to us by a man who moved to Colorado Springs, I believe in the 80s, maybe the 90s, from Southern California. So the idea that Californians just go places and ruin them doesn't actually accord either with the history of California, which voted to and illegal immigration, voted for English as its official language, voted against gay marriage, voted for all kinds of things, and enthusiastically voted for Nixon and for Reagan, whatever else Reagan meant. They did vote for him, and they voted for Nixon very enthusiastically. That takes California and acts like it just is just naturally and magically leftist, and it's not. And that's not borne out by history, and it's not even borne out by lots of people who live there today. In addition to that, okay, so even if you wanted to maintain that all Californians moving to Colorado had completely changed and that's what was going on and don't California my Colorado, which is kind of a futile slogan at this point. So the Texans will now take it up, don't California my Texas. Even if you think that all happened, you're still underestimating the fact of increasing population combined with incessant transients, which is really where Denver is today. 
And what happens with increasing population is that regulation has to come in to make life possible. So there's no way that Colorado becomes vastly more populated without increasing regulation of life. And that's everything from zoning to everything else. So the idea that somehow today it's libertarian because you can do drugs openly of various kinds with more drugs, perhaps down the pike legislatively, able to be done openly, doesn't actually comport with daily life here, which in its own way is now more like California or the East Coast than anywhere else in the West. I'm maintaining that's a function of population, not a function of some sort of you know, magic inside the dirt of the Denver area that makes it so different from Wyoming. In addition to that, you have incessant transients. So whereas Florida has incessant transients, but with a very significant background of being a firmly southern state before that transients really takes off, Colorado has incessant transients with, like much like California or Washington or Oregon, being a very culturally northern state. That's not going to produce a significant, often religiously motivated, conservative reaction And the exceptions to that in California come from people who probably have significant ancestry in the South and predominantly settled in Southern California, which you'll notice throughout California politics has always been more conservative until recent times than Northern California. In Colorado, we don't have anything like that, and we never did. So we did not have people who were religiously opposed to something like the 1960s, such as it occurred here. We do not have a massive equivalent to the moral majority in the 1980s. And folks who live here will say, oh, but what about Colorado Springs? All of these evangelical organizations are headquartered there. Ted Haggard, who was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals and was caught in a very significant scandal, was a pastor of a megachurch in Colorado Springs. And the NAE is still headquartered there, along with lots of other things. What about that? Here's the thing, is that until recent times, Colorado Springs was significantly smaller than Denver. And its growth and its transients continue to come through the federal government. So the idea that we have sort of like a military reservation down in the Springs that's going to offset the effect of Denver is kind of silly, because all of the same processes current in Denver inflows from the federal government, incessant transients, people with relatively little attachment to the area or its people, and absolutely no knowledge of its history. I I don't think I've ever lived anywhere, and I, I haven't lived in Florida or Arizona, but I've never lived anywhere that people know less about where they live and where things came from and what was where when. And, and that's natural. They haven't lived here very long in the whole scheme of things, and their parents didn't live here, and their grandparents definitely didn't live here. So... If you have all the same processes present in a place like Colorado Springs that you do in Denver, then what you have is just a place waiting to become Denver, which is in fact what is happening now in Colorado Springs. So with all of those processes ongoing, that just means that other places are behind Denver and Colorado to the extent that the same things are going on. That's what makes it tick. So where is it going is that it's going in a direction that is very difficult to see the end of 
because it's relatively unprecedented and, and somewhat similar in this way to California. But I'm maintaining it was like that long before any Californian came here, either for the weather or the relative cheapness of living, which has declined but still exists. Certainly, if you moved here from the Bay Area, things would feel cheap. If you moved here from almost anywhere else, except maybe South Florida, they wouldn't. So it's not the fault of the Californians. The Californians, like the Coloradans, are in the same processes that everyone else is. And the degree to which places become not only dependent on the federal government for inflows of cash and or jobs, but also are defined by transients, is a good way to make a place change relatively radically. So think about this, if you will. Denver is a place that maybe two decades back, certainly three decades back, was voting for somewhat libertarian-ish leftist candidates, but on a national level would generally have one, if not two, Republican senators. And Colorado voted by, by a, a relatively thin margin, but nonetheless voted for George W. Bush. So just take those as, as indices of public sentiment, right? Now, it is somewhat difficult to go near our state capitol, T-O-L, so it's in Denver, but I mean, downtown in Denver without having an unfortunate encounter with a homeless person. This is something where these places that have been relatively popular and people have moved to have a difficulty that I think is less often faced in places of longer standing, which is, what do we do about law and order? Because they've never really quite had to worry about it quite so much. Denver is more dangerous in this way than Boston and more dangerous in this way than uh, even New York City, certainly the Manhattan, in a way that has never really happened before. It coincides with the rise of public drug use, but it is also a certain permissiveness and a disinterest in law and order that defines our city, but also to some degree our state government. So the difficulty here seeing what's going on is that the transience is now moving in two directions and the inflows of everything else are moving in a direction of increasing chaos. So the inflows from the federal government and the preferences of the state government favor chaos at this point in the same way, in a way that mirrors California, but I'm saying is not due to Californians. And the transience goes in multiple directions now. So there are more go-backers now than there have been before. There are people who are priced out of Colorado in a way that wasn't the case 30 years ago, certainly. And people who, if they want to move here, cannot price in. So that affects both long-term population growth, but it also means that Denver is a place that, like a San Francisco or a Portland, is, is teetering. What that all means for the future is kind of hard to say, but particularly because it's hard to say something good about it, like where it will go or how it will end. What is now happening is that the state government, which is particularly captive to tech money from Boulder, which is where our major state university is, with apologies to CSU, University of Colorado is our major state university. Tons of research goes on there. Lots of high-tech jobs are available between Denver and Boulder. 
all of that money is what elected our governor, a gay Jewish man originally from New Jersey. There's some transients for you uh, <laughs> of lots of kinds, not a lot of settled things going on there. Tech money made that possible because in a place where a lot of people are not from here or don't know what's going on, it's much easier to capture state politics, especially with money, than in a place where there's any kind of settled resistance. Settled resistance is generally going to come from populations that have a sense of themselves. If they don't have that, or if that sense of themselves is not tied to the place, it's going to be hard for the place to withstand massive change. Since that massive change has been going on, there is some resistance particularly the governor wanted this year to make sure that all zoning was ultimately controlled by the state government. That was resisted even by pretty firmly blue places throughout the Front Range, basically because they don't want to be controlled by the state government and are the places that they are because they're not controlled by the state government and control their own zoning. So we'll see where that ends, but what it has really created is that Colorado has shifted not only politically but culturally and ideologically vastly toward the left. I'm maintaining that cities become like that not because a certain percentage of Californians move to them, because a lot of Californians that leave leave California because they hate all those things. They become like that because of ongoing conditions, particularly inflows and patronage from an ever-increasing government and a sense of disconnection that makes them extremely easy to control and capture because the populations have relatively little in common with each other. If you want further proof of this, and this is one more place to stop in the, in the, in the answer to Jace's question, but we'll take one more question after that in the time that remains. If you want more proof of this, one thing that you can simply think about is that Colorado's second highest peak, but the one most visible from the Denver metro area, Mount Evans. If you've ever seen a picture of downtown Denver framed against the mountains to the west, you are looking at Mount Evans. That's the highest peak. The highest peak in the entire state is Mount Elbert, but Mount Evans, named for Elbert's father-in-law, is named after John Evans, who was our governor during the Civil War, our territorial governor. So that was recently renamed, like within the past month, Mount Blue Sky, a name approved of by the state government and renamed by the federal government and lots of other things are going to renaming and new signs will come with that. You can drive up Mount Evans from Interstate 70 as you, drove, as you go west through Colorado. So it's kind of a nice place to visit a 14er you, you really don't have to try very hard <laughs> to get up, you know, 14,000 plus feet into the air. You can drive basically all the way up. That's renamed because Governor Evans was governor during the, quote, the Sand Creek Massacre, universally called so, in November of 1864, in which Cheyenne and Arapaho, mostly women and children, were killed by American troops from a unit raised the 1st Colorado Cavalry, originally to fight the Civil War, to go down into New Mexico and to fight largely Texan Confederate troops invading from the South. Sand Creek Massacre is never explained, and Evans's approval of it and 
Chivington's uh, actions during it are never explained in the larger context of Colorado history because nobody knows it. So here's an index of how easy it is to change a transient people is that they don't know who Evans was, number one. Number two, they don't care. Number three, if they did care, there are too few of them to put up any kind of resistance. So the mountain was renamed to this kind of strange Indian name. It's not in an Indian language, but it's named after certain Indian pagan ceremonies. <laughs> so I guess that's fine. In the same way that if the names are in Spanish, it's fine to name them very, very Christian things in Colorado, like we have the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, right? Which means blood of Christ, which is an outstanding name. So if it's in Spanish, you can, you can say Christian things. But it's called Mount Blue Sky after various Indian pagan concepts about the universe and, and rituals connected to connecting to that universe. Because nobody cares enough about Evans to put up much, if any, of a fight. That's a little less poignant than something that I think, in order to answer your question, you really have to understand. Inside the Colorado History Museum in downtown Denver is a statue of a Civil War soldier. It's not a Confederate memorial. It was knocked down in 2020 with graffiti spray painted all over it. And it was brought into the Colorado History Museum and, and probably won't go anywhere. They're not even sure they want to put it up in front of the state's military building, which is off in a suburb called Centennial, let alone back in its place near the state capitol. Because the unit to which it was dedicated because the unit defended Colorado from Confederate invasion, was also, in a different form, a couple years later, connected to the Sand Creek Massacre. If you have an ancestor that was in that unit, which is really hard to do in Colorado, really hard for almost anybody to be that connected to Colorado's history, maybe you would care. So this is really different from Georgia or... Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or Ohio, in that almost nobody who's here now was connected to any of the any of the guys in that unit then. The statue was knocked down because of the Sand Creek Massacre. No one mentioned the people who were brutally murdered and raped in various settlements in Colorado by the same Indians. None of that was mentioned. Nobody ever said, war is hell, horrible things are done by all kinds of people in all kinds of war. These people are not uniquely evil, etc. None of that was mentioned. Nobody mentioned either that nobody permanently lived in the Denver area when it was settled in 1858 and 1859. Nobody. None of that. The guy is a representative of something that almost nobody is connected to and represents something that almost nobody cares about. So he remains as a sort of historical oddity in the corner of a museum. And I think that's the fate of any population that is addicted to or defined by transience. So who knows what will represent Florida history in 200 years or Arizona history in 200 years. Because when you have incessant population flow, it's really hard to say what will happen to anybody. Something I haven't mentioned about the Denver area that that doesn't make it tick, but sort of defines it, or it is rather unique in the West in this way, is that Denver is a place for immigrants at this point. 
Large portions of the city are pretty Spanish-speaking, but we even have immigrants from lots of other places, too, in addition to Mexico and Central America. When people think about immigration, it definitely changes the job market in an area immediately, and we talk a lot about that on the show, so I have no reason to explain that at greater length. Obviously, if you have more people, that will drive down wages in the sectors in which those people work in the same way that if you have more goods, that will drive down the price of those goods for the people buying them. Pretty simple, right? So when people think about immigration, they think, okay, well, that's going to change everything. Something that you want to remember, though, is not only is it harder to get to a place back when, it's also harder to leave. But when you look at the West or you look at Denver in the 19th century, there are lots of people who are here and leave. And in the history of a lot of lawmen or outlaws in Western history, you'll find that they lived in four or five different Western states, let alone places within those states, in the course of their lives. So Wyatt Earp was here for a while, and then he wasn't. And Bat Masterson was here for a while, and then he wasn't. And Alaska's most famous early criminal from the Klondike Gold Rush, Soapy Smith, made his money and his name in Denver originally. The reason that that doesn't really matter, unless you're specifically interested in Western history, is because they didn't stay. So when you have transients, you also have the potential for them to go away again. This is something to think about as you think about immigration generally, and, and specifically the amount and the wide variety of sources of immigration coming over the southern border right now, is that, sure, they might stay here and change everything forever, in the same way that the kind of Germans that we predominantly had in Colorado, the Volga Germans, define both the history of our, our Lutheran churches in Colorado, as well as defining a lot about Colorado's agricultural history on the eastern plains. But it's also very possible, and it's certainly true in the history of Denver, that people will come and then leave again. I don't know where else they'll go, but it's very rare historically, to have a situation like we have today, where lots of people come and they could go away again, or they might stay. And if they stayed, it would be really different. Like, if all of the people coming, apparently from China, over the southern border today, as I record this, stayed, that would really change America. I mean, because these aren't, you know, we have plenty of people who have come already from Mexico, but from China, and then not necessarily settling on the West Coast, where historically there has been a population, that, that would change things, right? But who knows? It's very strange to have so many people be transient, be utterly unlike each other, be able to go almost anywhere, and yet not for that either to resolve itself into, and they go away again, or they stay, Okay, so it's kind of like right now, we, as well as Denver itself, is between two different options. It could remain the way it is with inflows from a federal government able to pay for things. Okay, maybe that's going away. And with people able to get here and wanting to be here. But that already is beginning in some ways to reverse in the same way that it reversed when the Civil War started and lots of young men said, maybe I'll go do something that means a little bit more than failing at mining. So the thing to wonder about, not only with Denver, but with the United States generally, and part, I think if this makes sense to the listeners, if you're not from the Mountain West, most people who aren't from the Front Range in the Mountain West feel about Denver 
the way most of you feel about Washington. So that's hopefully that helps you to get an emotional picture of what's maybe behind the question too. But something to wonder is, is this really a stable situation? Is this going to keep happening? Will Denver keep growing? Will people keep wanting to come to the United States of America? Will it remain the kind of place if they keep coming or if they stop coming that it is today that plenty of people still want to come to? All of that's up in the air, but I don't think it remains up in the air. I think it resolves itself somehow, and you can't stay the way that you are, and Denver can't stay both transient and popular forever. Let me answer one more question, and I hope that that was plenty of an answer for Jason. If you have other city questions, I'm happy to do it. Not all of them are as easy to do as Denver. There was, unlike most episodes, zero prep for this one because (laughs) I could go on about it all day. So if you want to know more about Denver, you want to know 1880s Denver, which is kind of fun and weird in a different way than 2023 Denver. I'm happy to talk about that. But any other other, place that you're interested in in a cities series is fine with me. Let me answer one more question today, and this is from Bruce. Just wanted to say I appreciate your opinion of the New King James and Texas Receptus, and we'll be covering that more in a different episode. I'm going to skip over more praise to get to his question. I was intrigued by your insights on the United States and Israel. Besides rise and kill first, do you have other resources to help gain further insights? Could you also comment on evangelicals who quote God's promise to bless those who bless Abraham to encourage almost blind and uncritical support of Israel? Thanks for your insights, Bruce. Bruce, thank you for the email. Let me answer the first question and then talk a little bit about bless those who bless Abraham, because that to me is part of the the much greater perversion surrounding the issue of the modern nation state of Israel. To understand more about Israel, rise and kill first is a history of the Mossad. I would go to, I believe it's David Schindler's History of Modern Israel. It's in Cambridge's series of histories of modern nation states. You know, they've got Hungary, they've got Germany. It's called a, a concise history of modern Israel. That's a good place to go. It's going to give you a sense from the inside of what Israel is and whence it came. There are a lot of resources about this. They're just generally not known. From the Schindler book, I would follow I would follow the bibliography into other places. The other book is a book I've mentioned before, and this would be more of the ideological or racial component of Zionism and that is Shlomo Sand's invention of the Jewish people. Sand is himself an Israeli. I can't recall off the top of my head if Schindler is. But what, that will, what both those books will provide for you is, in Schindler, a basic overview of modern Israel. So you'll get a sense of what the factions are, especially of something that I think a lot of Americans are relatively unfamiliar with because of our country's relatively great religiosity, as well as our country's, in the whole scheme of things, highly concentrated Jewish population. So most Americans are not going to be terribly familiar with the complexion of Judaism in the same way that most people in Mississippi will have no idea about the variety of Lutherans that Minnesotans would have a much better handle of, right, based on where they live. So you need to get a sense of that. You also need to get a sense of where Zionism comes from. And the Sand book is helpful in that way, the invention of the Jewish people, in formulating where racially, sort of within the context of race science in 19th century Europe, Zionism comes from. Because Zionism is 
not a it's it it is it is Jewish. It's specifically European Jewish. And if you don't understand the context of Jews in nineteenth century Europe, it's really hard to understand where Zionism comes from and 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 thus where modern Israel comes from. Once you've got a handle on that, that will also help you understand how, in my mind, just wildly disingenuous Jewish use of American evangelicals is in supporting Israel, as well as just foolish evangelical support of modern Israel is, because modern Israel is not, and it never was, but promoted, and then after its establishment, governed by people who were interested in founding a nation because of biblical prophecy. Okay, And it doesn't mean that in order to fulfill biblical prophecy, the person fulfilling it has to be aware of it, right? Cyrus it fulfills God's purposes, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, without himself being aware of or worshiping the true God. Fine. The problem here is that the people who found modern Israel are perfectly well aware of the Bible, but they're using it as a handbook for their own ethnic slash military claims. And, and even in some cases, in the, in the case of the book of Joshua, their actual military tactics. They're not using the Bible. They, they, they are indeed using the Bible, but they're not using it for a purpose that is at all recognizable to a Christian. And thus, you could look at the founding of modern Israel as just a giant example of breaking the first, second, and third commandments. It is it is a piece of blasphemy, which is readily visible in the increasing constriction and the incessant hostility to Christians on an official level by first the various Zionist agencies and then by the modern nation-state of Israel. Those constrictions don't exist by accident. They exist because of hostility to Christianity, because Christianity is understood as an ethnic threat to the nation-state of Israel, because a Jew who becomes a Christian is not defining himself principally in terms of the fact that he's Jewish. And that weakens every claim that they have on the basis of the book of Joshua or anything else to the land that they have taken. That's why. So that's the issue, and I hope that the Schindler and the Sand books will help make that clearer. That involves, therefore, a replication of their misuse of Scripture in American evangelicals who, because of both the Schofield Reference Bible, but also lots of other historical factoids that we could cover from the 19th century and the 20th century, believe that a Jewish nation-state is biblically requisite. Now, strangely, this is in fact not the desire, aim, or accomplishment of Jesus Christ himself, but somehow, around the, the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, a lot of English-speaking evangelicals of various denominations figured out that it should have been, right? And I'm being facetious, but it involve it's it's readily seen in quoting Genesis to say, "Bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you." A promise God makes to Abraham. What is God talking about? He's talking about Abraham for the sake of the promises made to Abraham concerning his seed. Should be a capital S in any English Bible you're using. If it's not, you go ahead and write a big capital S over the 
small s there or right seed where it says offspring because he's talking about Jesus Christ. He will bless those who, who bless Jesus Christ. He will curse those who curse Jesus Christ. This is, of course, true in everyday life as it will be in eternal life and at the last day. That's all that means. It has nothing to do with physical descent from Abraham. Physical descent from Abraham mattered up to and including Jesus Christ. Okay, that, that, that mattered. Salvation is from the Jews, as Jesus says in John 4. It doesn't matter in a modern military sense. It doesn't matter in a modern political sense. Jews, as an ethnic group, and the Sandbook will complicate your understanding of all of that, but just take it as a given. Jews as an ethnic group have no, no more of a particular claim on, you know, the Middle East, any, any portion of Middle Eastern real estate than any other group does, and, and less of a claim, certainly, than Palestinians and other Levantine ethnic groups do in the whole historical scheme of things. And even if they did have a very historic, specific claim to certain places, that doesn't mean that the United States of America or American Christians would have to support them in that any more than American Christians have to have a definite historical position on ethnic Russians in Siberia or ethnic Germans in Latvia or something like that. That can all be sorted out by the nations of this earth. It doesn't mean that they have a particular claim on anything. There's lots more that can be said about that, but it's just a very basic Bible misunderstanding and a failure to understand who Jesus Christ is, and therefore what the purposes of the Old Testament prophecies are, and how they are fulfilled in him. And because they don't understand that, they end up thinking of the Old Testament as a document largely about an ethnic group that now can take their money to support the modern nation-state of Israel. So, there's a way in which... You know, I think a certain degree of hostility to modern Israel ends up <laughs> making the same mistake of taking a very definite side in a, in a foreign matter that is part of what Washington calls entangling alliances in his, uh, in his farewell address. But there's also no requisite to support Israel by, for any ethnic reason. If you want to say, well, I support Israel because it's a democracy. Well, it's a very racially specific democracy. <laughs> so, so that's something for you, a modern person, to think about. And then, you know, you can make your own judgments. But the idea that it's supported for any kind of theological reason is, I, I think, really is off the table for any Christian who's reading the Bible in the way that the Bible wants to be read, which is to center on Jesus Christ. So that's where the almost blind and uncritical support of Israel comes from, is that you always get you always get a certain visible stupidity in people's actions when the Spirit of God is not moving them to do what they're doing, because the Spirit of God brings wisdom and light and what James identifies as a certain reasonableness characteristic of heavenly wisdom, whereas the, the quote, wisdom that James talks about as well, that is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but is rather demonic or earthly, always involves a certain blindness and a harshness and a brittleness that is also what you see in a lot of American Christians' support of the nation-state of Israel, which, which neither really wants Christianity to flourish at all, but also really doesn't need them because its basis for existing is a very 19th century nationalistic version, which is we all have common descent, 
It's also why, and here's just a little historical tidbit, it's also why Ashkenazi Jews matter a lot more in every facet of Israeli life than any other subgroup or sub-ethnicity of Jews in, in Israel, either historically or today, because they understand themselves to be superior in their culture and in their history to all the other subgroups of Jews. If you don't understand that, then you don't really know what you're talking about, and you need to understand it has basically nothing to do with the Bible. <laughs> okay, in the same way that Judaism, in its modern incarnation, is a, is a religion of the Talmud, not of the Bible. Israel, in modernity, in, in, in our time, is a state concerning ethnicity and what the 19th century called race science. It's, it has nothing to do with the Bible. You, you might think it does, you might want it to, but it doesn't. So as long as that's remembered, and I think that the, the Schindler and the Sand books will set you if you're interested in this stuff on lots of different lines of inquiry. As long as you understand that, I think it's easier to understand Israel and to look at it, as we talked about when we originally mentioned it, more rationally, or more in terms of being a state like other states, with its own interests, which are understandable, but we also have our own interests, which are also understandable and reasonable, rather than looking at it as a, a special objective concern or, or special validity or something beyond and far above every other state on the face of the earth. So you guys always have great questions, so I've run a little bit over time in order to answer them, but this has been A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or you definitely wouldn't be here. Discernment, boldness, and compassion, Christian virtues sorely needed today. The Biblical Worldview Conference Chicago can help Christians and families for such a time as this. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will address gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and confessing and sharing Christ in a woke culture. All this Saturday, November 4th. Go to worldviewchicago.org to find out more.